You're listening to Off the X with your host, Tyler Wells, Forrest Carvajal, and Barrett Moon. Brought to you by Pond Creek Duck Calls, Call with Confidence, High and Dry Utility Poles, Rixie Outdoors, Changing the World of Dog Stands, Hunt Proof, the premier waterfowl mobile app, Brown Water Leather Lanyards, and Wellens Land, Arkansas's leading recreational real estate and development firm. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Off the Hex Podcast. Hey. I'm Forrest Carvajal, and I'm here with my best good friends. Actually, we're missing one. You made it. Senior- I made the list. <laughs> you made the you list. Oh the my list. But senior sure shot, Tyler Wells is not here. To my left, the bourbon boy, Barrett Moon, is here. And to my right, the maestro of media, Matt Covington, what's is up, here. What's up? The, the nicknames are I've got abound right now. <laughs> and we have a legend on Zoom tonight. He may not think of himself as a legend, but I do because I've watched so many episodes of RNTV <clears throat> that he's definitely a legend in my world. Mr. Sean Stahl, how are you, sir? I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm not sure a legend here. I got my dang headphones. <laughs> you played. <laughs> you got a, a kink in your headphones He's over there. A knot out of his uh, kink of something. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, thank you for for hopping on with us tonight. Uh, I'm really excited about this because I any time that I have ever watched you on RNTV or any of the episodes that I've ever seen you in on TV, it's I'm not a goose hunter but you made it interesting because of how you would dissect the hunts. So I'm really excited about this tonight. But go ahead and give the listeners a little bit of where you're from, kind of how you got into hunting. Well, I, I grew up, born and raised southwest Michigan. Uh, I probably migrated maybe 15 miles from where I was born and, and raised. So I haven't went too far, but I've got to travel quite a bit uh, in hunting. And I, you know, I got into hunting kind of like anybody else. It was a family deal my my grandpa, you know, got me into the outdoors, uh, fishing, hunting. Um, I always joke around about, I mean, he probably taught me, I, I learned all the wrong things to do before I learned how to do it the right way. Cause he was a bit of an outlaw, but it's, I mean, at the age, yeah, I didn't know that, you know, I mean, you're just a young kid. You just think that's the way it's supposed to be. And then you're like, well, grandpa, you know, holding the spotlight is probably something you should be doing, you know, but no, but I mean, I, I've come a long ways. I promise you on that. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, no, that's, so just got into hunting that way and, and, uh, been just, just love the outdoors ever since, man. It's just a cool place, whether it's fishing or hunting, turkey hunting, deer hunting, duck hunting, squirrel, rabbit. I did a lot of rabbit hunting growing up, but I mean, just the outdoors in general, it's a, it's a cool place to find your center, man. Things the world gets spinning in all different directions and different ways. And you just go up and get outside and park up next to a tree or in a duck blind and everything seems to come back to normal. So, well, what kind of hunting came first? Cause at. you named a lot of them there. I probably did. I mean, road hunting was probably the first. <laughs> my grandpa. But, uh, but when I officially started hunting at 12, um, I, I did a lot of rabbit hunting. You know, you were only at the time here in Michigan, you know, you're only allowed to, to small game hunt. And I think, uh, when my birthday fell, I just had a few weeks of, of rabbit season left when I turned 12 there. So rabbit hunted a lot, man. I chased, I, I chased beagles for a long time growing up. My grandpa would, it seemed like every weekend I'd go to their house, he'd have a different beagle. And then towards the end of the season, you'd start seeing the same ones back in the kennel. And 
I probably spent more time chasing beagles that were chasing deer than we actually chased rabbits, but I did a lot of rabbit hunting growing up. Um, chased squirrels, pheasants, and then, you know, 14, you know, got to, got to be 14, started deer hunting, uh, shot a deer that first year, shot a doe, and, you know, I decided that, you know, my dad said, hey, man, the freezer's full. We don't need any more. We're done. You know, and you can still shoot more, but freezer's full, and I still wanted to hunt. And I said, what else is open? And pulled out the regulations, and, well, waterfowl is still open. So he pulled out some old duck decoys, some old paper mache ones out of the rafters, went and bought my duck stamp that afternoon. And away I went with me and my my lab and Springer, and we went, uh, did a little solo hunt, the dogs and I down on the pond. And it's kind of funny you turn a 14 year old loose with a gun in the woods but um that was the times back then and uh, i went down there and shot a pair of green wing teal on the water and from then on i wow been hooked ever since you had to have yeah. a stamp at 14 back then what's that you had to have a stamp at 14 yeah well you had to have a waterfowl a state one yeah really i don't think yeah yeah you had to have a state duck stamp here yeah interesting mm -hmm. did did y'all do the point system? Did you go through that up there like we had yeah, here? Yeah, we did. When, when I first started, it was right when it was the point system on ducks, and it was also you could shoot lead in one in certain counties, but not in others. It was all it was during the transition period when they did it in Michigan, at least, by uh, the, the estimated harvest for those counties, and those were the highest counties transition first. So in the county I lived in, um, you can still shoot lead in the county that was just five miles away. You had to shoot steels. So I kind of caught that transition period. I just found it. But at the time, I just found it easier just to straight up shoot steel shot because if that's the way you're going to have to go. And if you're going to hunt in both, you might as well just have the right one on you. So um, I'm better at following the rules and trying to break them. So <laughs> you learned that early. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm hunting my grandpa. That's the dang sure. Yeah. <laughs> Down here, I hear, I hear stories when I go to DeWitt, which is where we do family hunts once or twice a year, and they right, tell me, minute, "Time out. How do you how do you say? Is it DeWitt or DeWitt? <laughs> I say DeWitt. Is it? I, I've always said DeWitt. Man, see, I, that's well, you get farther up in Arcoe County, it's probably DeWitt. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't yeah, pronounce many words correctly, so it's, I just say it how I'm going to say they, it. They say they say D wit and heavy on the D. I don't know why, but that's just what they do. Well, I mean, it's kind of like hurricane WMA. Everybody here yeah. calls it hurricane, but when you talk about a hurricane, you call yeah. it a hurricane. So I, I've I've never understood that one, but yeah. I I say it the way they say it up here because yeah. I don't want to sound weird. Ketchup, ketchup, right? Exactly. <laughs> but anyhow, they talk about. During the point system, pintails were ten points a piece. So you could, ducks, yeah. you could shoot ten of those things yeah. back then. And I'm like, man, I've I've shot two of those in my entire life. I can't imagine trying yeah. to shoot ten of them. But back then, apparently, it was fairly easy. Well, yeah, they say it was, but we I, from where I'm at, we I never seen a pintail around here. Back then, when they were ten points, now you see them when they're one bird. You know. Mm. Well, what, what, at what point did you get onto goose hunting? Uh, probably later on that year, I just, there was, you know, there's a, a refuge here by the house. It's only 10 miles west of me right here. And at the time it was like one of the only places around you could actually shoot geese. And 
and we had a weird duck split and duck season was closed, but the managed goose area was open and they, you know, they held 25,000 geese over there. And it was just a crazy time when, you know, goose hunting was just starting to pick up. And it was one of the only places you could hunt and you could drive. I remember driving over there as a kid and seeing them before I even goose hunted. And you just sit there and park alongside the road and see thousands of them. But uh, so I was always enamored by that, but they had a, you know, a public, uh, it's public hunting basically uh, on a land refuge. And then they have another area where you could draw into and you basically stood in the woods and pass shot at the birds. So my actual first goose hunt, we went over and put in for the draw, got a horrible draw, didn't even get a reissue number. And we went to the second row of blinds in the woods and pass shot. And I mean, I, I saw thousands and thousands, which I thought at the time, you know, at 14, I thought it was thousands and thousands. It may have only been a couple thousand, but flying over my head and just honking and making noise. And um, I I kind of knew then, you know, I, I mean, I like to hunt and I like to fish, but it just something just rang right there that waterfowl was it. And um, I just grew up in a time when the Canada goose hunting was taken off. You know, um, we had ducks around, but, you know, we raised ducks in, in Michigan but they don't usually stick around long. We've got wood ducks and blooming teal and mallards and that stuff. And once, you know, once they get shot off or pushed off, then it's just the, the, the geese that we chase after. So I started hunting public right then when I was 14 and, you know, my dad, uh, I was fortunate. He had some friends that were really into it and had all the gear and I could jump in with them. Had a couple, had a buddy at school that I went to school with, uh, him and his dad were into it. So they, you know, they picked me up on, Saturday mornings at 4.30 in the morning, Saturday and Sunday morning at 4.30 in the morning. Uh, and we'd run over for the draw at 5.30 and try to get us a spot, you know. So, <laughs> were y'all yeah. running decoy spreads back then, like what we run now? <clears throat> uh, yeah, we actually used decoys. Yeah, yeah. Uh, out in the grass hay field, had some corn blinds or standing in, standing corn and it, what's weird is that, you know, if I take people by this place and show them, it's crazy. It, it's hard to grasp and, and comprehend, even in today's world of how we hunt. But, you know, it's a one mile by one mile square refuge and it's split by a main road. And then there's a road on the north and the south and the, on the east and west sides. But uh, there's basically zones. And in each zone, which is one field, there could be anywhere from eight to 11 different groups of hunters in it. And it's about roughly well, about three eighths of a mile long. These fields are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's highly competitive. It's like Arkansas public land. It's, yeah. He started out. Uh, I mean. Yeah. Pretty, pretty close. That's how, you know, so that's how you learn. It was, you know, looking back on it, I'm, I mean, I'm glad I had it. It just, it was very competitive. So it taught you to think outside the box, try to be better every day and try to outfox not only the birds, but the other hunters and where they were going to go, where they're going to set up how they were going to set up and how you were going to set up and try to get the birds to come to you and not them. So um, I attribute that to a lot of my early learning experiences in the field was, you know, hunting public. Go ahead. Were y'all running, uh, what size spreads were y'all running back then? Is it anything like we're doing today? Well, somewhat, yes and no. And so at the time, I mean, my very first decoy spread, I had a car when I turned 16. I didn't have a truck. So whatever I could get in the backseat of my cutlass that's what I ran, Jack. You had a uh, cutlass. You know, but uh, 
yeah and i had a i had well and i had a i did put a dang trailer hitch on that thing and i had a 12 when i was 10, 12 years old my grandpa got me a, a 12 foot flat bottom and a johnson two and a half you can't see it it's over there in the corner but uh johnson two and a half uh horsepower uh motor so i'd take that boat i had it on a trailer had a bumper hitch on that cutlass and i'd fill that thing up with uh with used decoys and that's what was, i started to have my back seat the boat and my trunk full of decoys all fall you, you um, wanted it but i, I you know typically it. oh heck yeah man you did what you had to do right but uh um you know so i i you know 16 17 years old i'd be out with a girlfriend friday night late and i'd be up at 4 30 in the morning be over there make that draw with everybody and do it all over again Saturday and Sunday or Monday morning. I'd be a walking zombie at practice basketball practice. But um, my tip, my spread back then. So I had you probably these, these probably don't ring a bell to any of you guys. But Carrie Light used to make an Aquabat Canada Goose decoy. It just had a like a suction bottom. I had like I had a dozen or eighteen of those. I had a couple dozen of them Carrie Light. They were shell decoys, but they looked like a full body. It had a metal spreader bar in there. And uh, I had like a dozen shell decoys. And then I made my dad work the GM at the time. And he, they'd, uh, um, they get uh, these wooden boxes would come in on pallets and they'd, they'd tear them apart and be able to take the plywood home. So I took that plywood and I make silhouettes out of them. And I had, I had 56 silhouettes that I made out of like three quarter inch plywood, five eighths inch plywood. And they're heavy things, but I hand painted them, did all that. So I had a bunch of those that I used for, for decoys just a is basically yard sale spread anything i could get my hands on at the time um you know we really didn't back then you had bigfoot decoys uh but that was that, that was about it you know um didn't have you know and shell decoys were real popular back in the even like the big 48 inch super mag shells i still got some in the barn um i still got some of the original silhouette decoys that i made back in the day nice. uh, but awesome. that was a typical spread so you know, and nobody, nobody really had decoy trailers back then. It just wasn't a thing. And I think it was about 1997. I was in my late twenties by then. And, uh, I bought a six by 12 cargo trailer, tandem axle. Nobody had one there. I come pulling in with that thing. Everybody's like, what in the heck are you doing? Why are you doing this? Was this and there still were attached to the cutlass? But no, by, by then I had a, I had a blazer. I pulled that sucker around with, <clears throat> got rid of the cutlass. But, uh, uh, so there were a couple of, there's an outfitter there, best chance charters. They had a couple of like four by eight boxes that they put on, uh, boat trailers that they made and they used those. And there's another guy, Goosebusters, Dwayne and them had a one similar to that, but that was it for trailers in 1997. Now, if you go over there, there's probably only three to 8,000 geese there at peak times, but everybody that pulls in that parking lot has a, has a cargo trailer. And some groups have two or three of them with them. So, you know, they're putting out hundreds and hundreds of decoys. So I'm, I'm curious. I've, I'm not a big Canada goose person, but I have, I do listen when people talk about them and you know, that Southern Illinois area <clears throat> used to be, like I guess the hot spot for Canada geese or whatever, and they don't really shoot them there anymore. Is right. our Canada geese? Is it like they're not migrating, or is it because they become so residential easily? It, it's a product of a lot, a lot of different things, you know, and they, and they blame it on. Uh, I said they. I shouldn't generalize them, but a lot of people blame no-till farming. 
and all this and that. But bottom line, it comes down to two things. It comes down to pressure. It's a reaction to pressure. And also they become urbanized. Even the as the resident Canada goose population exploded, all these birds are sitting in city parks and city, in lagoons and lakes and golf courses and all that. And when you do have these MV, MVP and James Bay birds, Eastern Prairie, all those population of birds that would migrate from the tundra and come down, well, they're seeing all these little refugees. You know, the, they used to fly direct to Horicon Marsh or direct to the uh, Fenville Farm Unit by me or direct to like La Quiparo in Southwest um, uh, Minnesota and then move down to Swan Lake in Missouri and Southern Illinois. Those traditional areas, you just make big hops. Now they make little skips all the way down and some stop, you know, a few stop here and a few stop here. Next thing you know, there isn't enough to go around at any other place. And all, and it's and it's also a reaction to pressure. You can't continuously shoot at birds, hunt after hunt after hunt. The refuge here by my house, it used to hold 25 to 40,000 birds at peak. And that peak was end of October to first, you know, first half of November. Now peak is late in January when everything else is froze up and standing corn over there and we got three foot of snow on the ground and they're over their feet and that's when they're peaking. So it's, it's a pressure deal. Same with Southern Illinois. Um, the, every, every field down there that a goose could potentially land in and feed on outside of the refuge had a goose pit or a spread in it. So it doesn't take much to, you know, if they're going to survive, they're going to go where you're not hunting them. So um, it's a combination of both, in, in my opinion. I, I didn't mean to make it sound like just one thing. We hunters, all of us do no, that a it's, lot. It's, but it's I don't understand the Canada geese. And from my basic point of view, I do notice that the resident birds, that population just grows and grows and grows every year. And I was mm-hmm. curious where people like you actually saw migrators, which in Arkansas, I assume – Back in the day, we got migrators, but it wasn't during my lifetime very yes, much. Did. That yeah, you did. Yeah, but, but you had, nowadays, uh, Arkansas was yeah, Arkansas at one point in northern Louisiana was the the wintering ground for the MVP birds that would come out of uh, you know like up by Churchill and, and uh, up there in Hudson Bay. They used to go all the way down into Louisiana and in Arkansas, and eventually they moved up into southern Illinois, and then now you know. Now they're just spread all over from Horkin, Wisconsin, down to, you know, I-70 in that area. So then the next question but would which, be... In, you know, which has created, it's it's created a boom, really. I mean, you you never, when I was a kid, there was only a couple of places you could go to shoot a Canada goose. Now, I mean, you just walk out your front door, no matter where you're at. I don't care if you're in Florida or Fargo, North Dakota, there's somewhere close to you you know and that never used to be the case that's true that's true but what i was thinking about is is the duck populations and like you know louisiana used to get a lot more mallards and they're seeing less mallards and it you know people talk about flyways shifting and and all this other stuff do you do you think that that's something similar with the ducks it's just a longer progression yeah it is um but i mean what you Let's just face it. I mean, uh, look in the mirror. You look different. You did ten years ago, right? I do. Too. <laughs> no, of course not. Uh, everything I look exactly the same. Every, you know, fortunately <laughs> but unfortunately, everything changes through time, and the only thing that you can count on to remain constant is change. Everything's going to change throughout, and it's just, you know, as hunters, we got to be prepared to react and and do things. You know. Uh, 
I, you know, I'm not a big climate change advocate, green this, green that. But, you know, if you look at throughout history, the climate has changed. We went through ice ages, we went through hot spells and da, da, da. So it just stuff changes, the world changes. Um, and, and the birds react to it. They just, they, you know, they, they want simple things, man. They're just like us. They just, they want peace, happiness, and love. They want to be able to raise a family. And that's, um, yeah, I mean, they want to propagate and get to the next generation. That's what they're going to do. And um, that's where they, they find, you know, it's just simple. They just go out and find those places. They can find their little niche and survive. And if it's moving, you know, a hundred miles or uh, 500 miles, they're going to do it. I really like that perspective. His perspective is not settling on like the present. His is right. like the next step. I love that. Like <laughs> that's yeah. a learning moment for me, and I had to say it to make sure I got it. Well, yeah, I mean that's, but that's yeah, that's that's hunting in general. I mean, you're not like, like when I'm looking at places I'm going to hunt. I'm you know I'm not thinking about just hunting there tomorrow. I'm thinking about where are we going to hunt the next day and the next day and the next day. And I was talking about that, you know, we're going to do some, we're going to actually film a, a couple episodes over the next few years. Kind of, it's based on that. It's what we do. And I don't know if you follow, you follow turkey hunters at all. I'm not a turkey hunter. I, I was told I'm that's so, addicting and I don't need yeah, another addiction. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> it is. But so Culpepper does this deal, why he did what he did. Oh yeah. And after the hunt, he kind of goes through and, you know, he says, this is why, you know, this is why he did what he did. Um, we're going to kind of not copy that but kind of go along them same pretenses and it's what we do the rnt version um it's what we do and why we did it um you know so kind of break down the the scout so looking at a field what we're looking at why we're looking at this field and what's 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 option one two and three i always like to have more than one option uh just because of weather it could be wind it could be uh Multiple, multiple people have permission to hunt that piece of property. Uh, we may have to give somebody else the rights to hunt there. So where are we going? You know, what are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to do uh, all that stuff and options? So, well, if the wind blows out of the south, that means they're going to have to come over the tree line, like, and it's going to be kind of funky. And it would be better if, you know, I'm just throwing out these hypotheticals. It could be, it'd be a better field to hunt if it was a west wind because they come off the roost and they could kind of fly in a diagonal line right straight at you and not have to circle around you blah, 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 that kind of stuff. And why did we choose to set up the blinds the way we did in a certain place in the field? You know, why did we um, not hunt the middle, but we hunted just off the middle and just off the fence row? Why did we do that? Um, just all that kind of stuff and kind of break down the decoy spread and why we set it up how we did and why we're trying to get them land where we are. And then at the end of it, just kind of go, okay, um, this is what they did. This is what we, you know, we talked about. They thought they were going to do, but guess what we learned something here because i don't care man it doesn't matter how old you are if you're hunting and you didn't learn something that day um whether it was you know how to make biscuits in the blind or you know what geese you know a certain note or something but you, you know you learned something so just talk about that and put it out there and not every hunt is a successful hunt but there's certain things that i look at when i look at a field when i look at where i'm going to set up a blind when i look at when i'm going to set up a spread when I look at how I'm going to call it at geese, there's certain things, there's a checklist, there's a mental checklist that I go through that through years of experience that I can hedge the bet that this is going to be more times than not a successful hunt, if that makes sense. Okay. So, so that's, let, that's something we're. Let's do your, your checklist and I'll, I'll do my best to uh -huh. kind of 
ask you simple questions because like, none of us are goose hunters at all, especially Canada geese. We've yeah. got specs and we'll hunt those. But it, but it, see, it, apply, it, it applies to any kind of animal that you hunt. And I'm a, I'm a firm believer that if you're a good deer hunter, you can be a good duck hunter. And if you're a good duck hunter, you can be a good fisherman because all it comes down to is hunting and learning your quarry, knowing what their habits are, knowing what they're predisposed to do in certain situations and certain scenarios and putting yourself in the right position uh to get you know in the best possible position for you know making good shots good kill you know that kind of stuff okay so we've got early goose season coming up here in arkansas so what would be the number one like what what's what's my first goal find birds location 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 those are your three your three most important things i've talked about this since i first got in the industry and started doing seminars you got to be where the birds want to be that's on the X. You got to be near where the birds want to be if you can't be on the X. And sometimes if you can get permission on the X, you can do the other two locations for a couple of days. So locate first locations on the X. Some location, the second location part is somewhere near. And the third one is somewhere in between. So somewhere near could be off to the side. Say, you know, they're coming just to make this simple, say, um, they're coming, they're coming out of the east, flying straight west to the field. Well, you get a hard south wind on that thing blowing 15 to 25. You could get on the north end somewhere on that flight path and burn them down and still not waste that feed, right? So that's that's the, the second location is somewhere near. And then in between is obviously running traffic. So if you can get uh, a couple of places locked down, the X, you know, you stay off the roost. Obviously, that's not a good place to hunt. But somehow somebody every year finds a way to hunt the roost here in town and mess it up for everybody on opening day. But <clears throat> they do. Trust me, there'll be some new kid ever. You'll see for some new group of kids got a kayak down in the river and they're going to get on. You know, it's that big bull, little bull. They're going to slide down that hill. They're going to run down there and they're going to get them one mm-hmm. uh, instead of just letting them fly out and everybody. But anyway, I digress. Um, so it's location, location, location. The second thing is concealment or the third the fourth thing actually is concealment uh so if you're on the field if you're on on the x and you just go out there and go willy-nilly and don't hide from them guess what you're not going to be very successful at all because i don't care how many birds are coming if there's ten thousand birds coming in the field if you're not hid they can see you your your blinds aren't grassed in your pie facing all that crap that ain't happening you might scratch a few out but you're going to be wondering what the heck happened well uh you didn't focus on concealment. That's that's priority. Once you're in a field, whether you're running traffic on the X, it's less important when you're running traffic because they're not conditioned to that field. They don't, you know, they're not they, they're not privy to what what was in that field the night before kind of deal. But um, you still need to be grassed up and look somewhat natural, and you need to avoid the pie faces sticking out of the blind. You know. Okay. Um, so after that, it. it Go ahead. Oh, real quick, Sean, I want to stay on concealment for a minute. Um, we ran into an issue, mm-hmm. uh, which again, we hunt predominantly specs more than uh, Canada's, but uh, we yep. set up on a we hunted a field a couple of times and we we typically hunt a frames, which I'm assuming you do too. Uh, number one, I want to know what yep. you, what's your favorite type of concealment, what type of blind you like to run, and number two, what is your take on shadows off of those blinds and how to how to set up. Um, yep. So, so hundred percent this, I mean, and this is another deal I preach constantly 
with you know with setting up and i hunt out of a uh, tangle fruit panel blind i help I, I that's my design and baby and uh kind of brought it up so that's that's what we hunt out of mostly and we brush the heck out of that thing and brush the heck out of it more we uh hunt with the flip tops on the top i'm a big advocate of that because if you're going to be out in the middle of the field you got to have top coverage on those blinds especially them specs and how high they come in and circle mm-hmm. you got to be able to cover that up and you know we've taken even there's a synthetic product out there called blind grass uh, blindgrass.com i'm sure you've seen it it's it's it looks like cattails and we put that on the top of the lids and make them stick over the top and then do that on the front and make it come up well you can do that with natural grass but natural grass would bend after an hour or so and your buddy's sitting sitting on they're sticking her arms on top of the blinds and that stuff it'll bend it down and then all of a sudden you see a pie face and i've flown enough drones to because i get mad like if we get our butt kicked on the hunt i mean i'm i you know i want to win so you know i'm gonna figure out what it is and after the hunt get the drone out fly it around see what you see in there and most of the time you're seeing the people in the blind most people blame the blinds and sure if you set up the blinds wrong we'll talk about that with the shadows but most of the time, if 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 it's if they're shying off the blind, it's two things. They're seeing the people in the blind or it's a shadow. So you really need to like I tell people wear black. We don't wear black in the blind. People wearing their like colored camo and all that. But it's just like a turkey blind. When you look in a turkey blind, you want to wear black, you want to blend in the shadow. So wear black, keep your faces down, wear a black hat, keep your faces down. Um and, and don't move and have those things brushed to the gills. And you should finish them if you are also following the other rules that I always follow or try to follow. I say, I say always, but it's not, there's, there's some give and take with that um, for, for small reasons, but, and I can get into that later, but most of the time I like to crosswind birds. I don't like to make them fly right into that blind. I don't want to fly right into where the boogeyman nest is. I want them to come in crosswind and slide across the decoys and then get into that hole so they feel comfortable. You know, hopefully if you got realistic decoy spreads and you're calling everything, set them upright, they'll slide in that way instead of coming right at you. So I like to crosswind them. I don't like to make them fly above the blind. So make them finish like at the you know middle of the blind or just to the, the slight downwind side of the blind. Uh, and we can adjust shooters accordingly as the day goes, you know, if, if the shooting's better on one end or the other, but uh, that doesn't concern me. What concerns me is trying to finish the birds and then stringing the decoys downwind further. Cause I'd rather, I'd rather geese land long than I would have to deal with them flaring on something. So I'd rather be comfortable in a spread and trying to land long and coax them up with the calling than I would trying to spook them. So I'll string decoys further downwind than I normally would if I was just hunting, you know, say layout blinds or something like that. Um, the other thing is, well, two things. I don't like to have geese circle us. So that's why I kind of try to watch the wind and try to see where they're coming from and how I'm going to set up in the field, knowing that I want to set up crosswind. And I also want to have the sun hit some form or faction on the front of the blind, whether it's quartering on or straight on or dead on. I know it sucks looking into the sun, but it's still – uh, it's still better than the birds flaring because of that shadow, because that shadow is just a black hole. Once you put sun on that grass in front of you, it makes it just flatten out, flatten everything out and blend in. And it doesn't look like a giant spook box because although shadows are natural in nature, they get broke up by other vegetation. And we'll do things like 
we've got a, a, a ground stake punch and we've got a little landscape drill. We'll cut, you know, if there's a bunch of cedars in the area, this isn't, you know, pertaining to Arkansas, but um, we'll cut cedars and stick them and make an island because well, let's face it, we're not trying to be invisible. We're just trying to look not like a boogeyman or not like a spook man, spook blind. And that's why I will also, we'll set up three sets of panel blinds pretty much every time we hunt. Uh, because it look it's longer, it looks less like a blind. It looks more like a fence row. So we'll do stuff like that with the blind. Do so, you do you do that? that I, I've got a couple questions. Do you you said you set up facing the sun? Does the does the shadow that your blind cast behind you does that bother you at all? And then number two, uh, um, it, go ahead. It, it does it does bother me, but it's a lesser of two evils. I'd rather have it behind us than in front of us. And that's why I really don't want birds circling either. I want to try to put them in on that first pass. Because, yeah, I mean, the more time I feel like a broken record when I talk about hunting and stuff, but it's, it's just the same thing over and over in my head that I go. The more times they circle, the more chance they have of seeing the boogeyman. The yeah. more chance, times they circle, the less they were really committed to begin with. Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. harder they're going to, you know, harder they are to shoot. So um, I try my best to try to get them to commit and land on that first pass. Do you set those panel blinds up in the middle? You said sometimes you'll create an island. Do you have, I mean, yep. you'll you'll set those panel blinds up in the middle of a field if you need to, or do you try and be near a levee or oh, yeah. near a fence? Lo- yeah. Okay. I prefer to be, I prefer to, to be up against a levee or up against a wellhead or something like that, but we will set them up out in the, in the middle of the field and, and, so I, I don't ever like to really set up dead, dead nuts in the middle of the field. I kind of want to give them at least two thirds of the field downwind mm-hmm. and a third of the field upwind and then kind of block them with a wood liner. You know, you want to try to keep them from behind you. Right. If they're going to circle, I want to keep them circling out in front. I want to keep them off that shadow. I want to keep them out. I want to give them enough room and enough space that if they are a little bit nervous, they can still circle, not see the shadow stay out front, see decoys, and have plenty of room, uh, you know, out front of you downwind to be able to come in and commit. I'm, I'm sitting here but listening I, and to like this. like I said, this is... I'm sitting here listening to this. I'm like, I have no idea how we have ever killed a goose after listening well, to mean, what Sean's saying. He's pretty well, much saying that's, every that's, mistake that's, that we made, exactly. and that's why we didn't kill him. <laughs> but, I mean, but that just goes back to it. You can do all the wrong things in waterfowl hunting, and if it's the right conditions, they 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 just gonna come in and give it up anyway. Yeah, we um, had the right you conditions. Know, and, yeah. and if, you, yeah. <laughs> if if you if you see enough, I mean, if you see enough birds, if you got thousands and thousands, and that's what's nice about going to Canada. And you know, it's not that they're dumb birds. And when we go to Canada, we're not shooting. Uh, I would say seventy-five to eighty percent of the birds we're shooting are two-year-old and plus. Uh, they're molt migrant Canada geese that spent their summer up in Hudson Bay and then tundra. And they're working back down to the golf courses and city parks where they're from. Um, they're all the non-breeding population and all that. So that, you know, we're not shooting stupid birds, but it's just sheer volume that some days when you make mistakes, you can work your way out of mistakes just by having sheer numbers yeah. to work with. Yeah. And eventually you're going to find a couple of dumb ones, you know, those are luckily those are the ones we've found lately we we had one really (laughs) good spec hunt this year and we thought that we had it figured out after that and we (laughs) we really didn't we just had we were just high on the horse that day yeah (laughs) but you know i mean that's like 
it's it's cool i'm not good at doing it i i make a lot of mental notes and sometimes i forget about them but it's cool to write that stuff down like what worked today and and why why do we think it you know what were the weather conditions today that were different you know and some days like birds that 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 have been in an area for any amount of time whether it's a snow goose a speck a mallard uh canada goose whatever once they've been in an area and they get acclimated they know where the safe zones are they know where the food is they get harder to they get harder to fool the longer they've been there and you don't have a new influx of birds when they get easier to fool is on when factors when the wind blows hard when the, you get some sleet some ice some snow some some they get a little hurry up in them uh, and they start making mistakes that's when they get good and honestly um we live and die as a duck hunter, as a goose hunter on the hatch. Um, you can, I mean, you can tell when, when, when the hatch comes out for the year, you can tell if you're going to have a good year or a tough year. Uh, and I shouldn't say a good year or a tough year. Every year is a good year, man. I, we, we should never play or place our happiness on the side. The piles don't make smiles. I should, I, I say that all the time. It mm-hmm. sucks. You post a picture on internet, internet of a big kill pile everybody million hundreds and hundreds of likes and you post something where oh man something you know went bad and chopped through pile three and that nobody likes it um but honestly those aren't the hunts you learn from it's the it's the ones that that you had to work at and try to figure out and and the silly stuff happens and your buddy rips his waiters or you know just something <laughs> stupid happens you know we've all got plenty of but, stories of that oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. 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 So when when are you headed to Canada? Uh, a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. We'll go up there and start out. We got a house up there that we stay at, and a bunch of people up there that I've known for years. They're pretty much like a family. So I'm are, looking forward to it. Are you pleasure Sorry. hunting or guiding? Both of those could be together. I'm not saying they have to be separate. I, I do not. I do not guide at all uh, anymore. It uh, it's too conflicting things you know we're out there trying to get footage and sometimes when you're trying to get footage you're passing up shots that if guys are paying to hunt you you'd send it gotcha you know so uh they're they're that you know on a paid hunt you know guided hunt those hunters are there to shoot their guns um on a on a uh on a film hunt you know i'm not going to shoot them high i'm not going to shoot them wide i'm not going to shoot them out the back because it doesn't uh it doesn't you're not going to get them on film and it's going to look horrible. And I don't, honestly, I don't hunt that way. Even if I'm buddy hunting, um, I just don't hunt that way. I, if, if I'm going to shoot something, if I'm going to take its life, I want to do it. I mean, it's never fair. I mean, we're not fighting a fair fight with them, but I want to do it as, as fair as I think I can. And I want to fool them. You know, I like to shoot them feet down. Um, And we don't always do that, but I mean, the majority of time, it's feet down. And if we don't, we don't, I just try to figure it out and go back at them the next day. Do you have the cameras with you every time you go? Uh, for a stretch there, I did. And I'm trying to get away from that a little bit. I'm trying to line out my film days and then my fun days. Um, and I say fun days because there's things that go on during a hunt when you're filming. It's, it's like a circus, man. You got cameras moving and, this and that and you gotta it's just a lot of stuff going on and you lose sight of some of the things and how some of the things that are fun about it um 
and also how birds really react when you're not, you know, out there trying to film a hunt and, and goofing around and doing stuff. So it keeps me fresh and it keeps me sharp if I can just go out and fun hunt um, and ready for those those days of filming. Because it's honestly, it's work. And work sometimes isn't that much fun. And if, if work's not fun, then you kind of dread it after a while. So that's why I, I think it's important for me. And that's why I turkey hunt. That's why I fish. That's why, you know, I spend, uh, I try to spend a few extra days, you know, taking my kid out when I'm home or taking um, the old man uh, out hunting and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I still, I, I try to get out and, and fun hunt more now than I, than I used to. What, what kind of things have you learned as far as filming waterfowl? Because Matt over here, he has filmed, I don't know how many deer get shot and I don't know how many big game get shot and he's filmed waterfowl hunts too, but I think you're getting, I mean, it's your deal now yeah. is waterfowl stuff. So yeah. what are some things you've learned over yeah. the years doing R and TV and you did something, what was it called before that, that you did? Well, I did the foul pursuit. DVD foul pursuit. Foul pursuit. I didn't want to get it wrong. Yeah. Sorry. Be- before. Yeah. I did it before and in conjunction with probably the first eight or so years of uh, R and TV, eight or 10 years, whatever it was. I don't know. They all run together. Um, you know, waterfowl hunting, like, you probably, you know, coming from deer and, you know, did you, did you do much turkey hunting or anything? Yeah, I did it all. Filming? Yeah, I field produced for six years. So. Yeah. So, and, and I don't mean this in a, in a bad, but deer and turkey are so much easier to film. Oh yeah. Waterfall hunt. Because, you know, I mean, the, the deer, it just, everything happens slower. And waterfowl is so, imp- I mean, you know, you know, that deer is going to be walking down this trail or the, you know, he gobbles over here and it's going to take him 15 minutes. To, you know, sometimes he might try to circle around behind, but, but waterfowl is, it's boom, boom, boom. I mean, they come from here, they go around here, they spin, they shoot, you know, you call the shot, the wind's blowing, they go here, this guy's shooting over here. And, you know, it's just, it's utter chaos and trying to get, and it, trying to get on the same page. And that's why it helps. Like we've got a core group of guys that we kind of that, that travel around and, and we kind of, we all have an equal role. I don't say anyone, I mean, I'm kind of the ringleader, but I'm not the, you know, I, if, if push comes to shove, I'm, I'll probably have the final say in something, but the group that we have, we've evolved in such a way that we all know our roles and we all work them. And, you know, we got the blind crew and the scouting crew and, you know, and decoys and, and all this and that, that it, it just kind of gels together. And we know what we're trying to do. And we all want to finish him in a hole. We don't want to shoot him out to the left and we don't want to shoot him out right. And um, that kind of stuff. So that's, that's, you know, made it a lot easier through the years is just having a good group of people around you that know what they're trying to do and what they're trying to capture. And um, I'm not saying that we do our best with RNTV to capture a hunt about 95% of the way that I would do a, that I would normally do a hunt if I wasn't filming. So we don't have a bunch of guys standing up shooting, you know, with the camera and doing cutaways and do all that. We try to run two cameras. So we get that in the blind interaction and guys coming out organically, not fake. And, you know, and then got to have a guy on the bird, you know, the birds, and then he's also responsible for the dog and that kind of stuff. So, we don't have to stop and okay, redo this and redo that. And cause to me, that's, I mean, some guys can do it. To me, I, 
I'd blow a gasket, man. I couldn't do that. It's like, <laughs> hurry up, get in. You know, if you're not capturing it the way it happened, um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be a part of it. I was going to ask how many cameras y'all generally had on the hunt, but you said, you said two. So <clears throat> yeah, we'll, we'll run two. Uh, and we've started running, you know, GoPros have made a pretty good advancement and stuff. And we, we run some of those and then where applicable, I mean, the laws on drones have just keep changing and evolving. Um, we'll use drones. Um, but primarily those are used outside of the hunt, you know, and some of the scouting and that kind of stuff. Um, anymore but yeah so i we use quite a few cameras at times you have anything to add to that no i don't know anything about the cameras i love the camera stuff i mean if i'm being honest like that stuff really interests me i not that i would want to do it to the level that y'all do it but i like trying to capture what do you run for what do you what do you run for a camera when you're filming uh sony dslr yeah see and that's awesome but it's very, very difficult. Like you know that camera inside and out, right? Right. So you could probably rack focus and Matt, you know, run manual and all that. It gets very difficult with, you know, because we run, I probably got about three or four guys that I use throughout the year. And, and so we'll, sometimes we'll have the guy in the blind using the DSLR because things are going slow, but for the bird cam and being, well, it's autofocus on a, on a regular, uh, just like a Sony X80 or something like that. Uh, it's just our, the, the throwaway rate is a lot lower when we're doing it that way with a camcorder. And it's just, you know, you can throw it in anybody's hands. So if we shoot out and the camera guy with the birds are still coming, the camera guy can shoot, you can hand the camera off and, and somebody can do it. The DSLRs, like I can do it. I can film with a DSLR and one of my other guys can, but it's tough. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten um, to the point I can run it in my sleep, but it took a long time for me to get to, yeah. to that yeah. point. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Like you said, I can't just yeah. say, all right, Barrett, here you go. I'm going to shoot my four ducks real yeah. quick. And so. you probably got a bunch of custom settings right. and stuff. Yeah. So it, you, well, you run a Sony. What do you, what do you run a Sony? Uh, I have the A7R5 right now. Oh. Yep. Dang, they're going up. I got an A7R3 mm-hmm. and an A7. It had the, and uh, I don't even know what else. Had the S3 for a long time, and that was probably my favorite camera. Um, I just went to this R5 because it has a little bit better picture quality or more megapixels. I've got an F150. Oh, yeah. F150. That's what you drive. <laughs> Matt is exceptionally good at what he does, so don't don't let him be yeah. humble over oh, here. He's yeah. really freaking good no, at what he does. I've done it for it, a while. It's it's tough, yeah. I actually yeah, almost came in second shot with you guys so. a couple years ago, but I had to go on an elk hunt. I was talking to Blake and Jimbo. So uh-huh. I almost got to come to Missouri. Bad yeah. Oh, man. Well, Missouri is in, like, uh, well, Habitat shoot. Flats. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It was a big elk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so on, on pictures and stuff and social media now, what – what do you look for in a good, I would say, social media post? Because me personally, I want to see a picture that captures the experience. I could everybody's posted a pile pick. A pile pick is the same every single time. It's just different people, different birds. But I like to see sometimes. Yeah, yeah sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I like to see the experience. That that's what I want to see. Uh when we first started the podcast, one of the guys <laughs> Caleb took a picture of Barrett and Barrett, he's holding his gun, but he's just like 
big laughing. Okay. And you can tell there's no birds in the picture, but you can tell from that picture there's a good time being had. There's something funny that happened, and there's it's this is a good moment. And those are the kind of pictures that I really like to see. Yeah. Man, you're asking the wrong person because <laughs> this is the honest God truth. Everything that I post that I drag my feet on and say, oh, that's stupid. I, nobody will like that. That's the one people like the most. And the ones that I think, oh, my gosh, people are going to really like that. That would be awesome. I put it up and like, bomb. So, yeah, I, I can't get it. Well, yeah. what do you – no, I mean, what I'm do you good. like to see? In, in your opinion, what – like uh, what's gonna like give you to, to hit the I like, like button? See, I like to, see, I like to see lifestyle stuff. Like you said, I like to see um, birds in action. I like to see reels. Actually, I like to look. I like to watch reels. Um, just uh, good dog work. Good, uh, you know, close ups of birds reacting. That kind of stuff is my personal preference. But like I said, I'm I must be a weirdo because not everybody <laughs> likes the stuff I like. So. I'm glad you brought up the dog because don't that answer was... that. That wasn't a question. Don't answer that. So. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the dog though, because that was something that I was going to talk to you about. Because you're a big dog guy, and we didn't we didn't get into the oh, importance of a dog on a hunt. So I want you to dive into that a little bit. Holy cow! Yep, you're going to label me as a dog lover. I know it. Everybody's going to get me now. Uh, I I honestly like. I went for a time there. So back, I can't remember how many years ago. It was a long time ago. I worked for Avery Outdoors and I had to go down there to Memphis like the week before the open duck opener up here. And I, at the time I was working at a, um, I was working for Avery and I could uh, guide at this. Uh, it was a private duck club members only here by the house. And there were six members. Each member had their own guide. They called him a punter because back in the day, the, uh, they would actually put a, take them out in a punt boat. And so that each, each member had his own guide and that guide would have a dog. And I'm, I was on my way back from Memphis and I got that dreaded phone call that, Hey, your dog ran away. Oh, okay. No. Uh, that's not good. Find him. Well, I got home late that night and I had the guide that next day and he still was not home. So I got to go through that hunt and uh, I, we we found him that Tuesday night. Some kid found him like uh, about an hour away. Well, he picked him up not far from the house here, but he took him about an hour away and he took him hunting. Didn't know, dog didn't know his name, but he took him out. He took him out on opening day and a couple other days. He said, "Man, I just, he just sit right there beside me." I tell him, "Fetch him up, boy." They go get him. But he found your dog I, and then I, hunted I, him. I, yeah, found my dog and took him hunting. Oh my and gosh! I, I don't well, know I whether to be mad about the situation back. or happy you got the dog back. I'm... Yeah. Oh, well, the funny part was is he had. <clears throat> so I went and picked him up. So. It, we're getting off topic here. You no, you're to good for it. I'll forget where I'm going. <laughs> but so the funny part was I took and I went and it's totally illegal. I printed up flyers and put them in every stinking mailbox within a mile radius of my house. I put them in all the restaurants in town and on Tuesday night. So I guided at this club on Saturdays and Wednesdays. That's the only two days they hunt. So Tuesday night is about nine o'clock. I get this phone call and he says, uh, 
yeah, I'm calling about a dog. And I'm like, you found him? He's like, well, you'll have to describe him. And I, you know, there was a distinct feature, a couple of distinct features he had. He had some gray hairs on his tail and whatnot. And I told the kid, you know, I said, that's, you know, this, he's like, I said, is that him? He's like, he kind of hesitated. He's like, yeah, that's him. <laughs> oh, he was, he was so <laughs> like, disappointed. Oh, Describe yeah, the dog. He, said, he sits right, really well and <laughs> fetches up ducks when you tell him to. That's him. His, his dad saw the thing and um, turns out he had left, he had, the dog had left here and he ran a mile up to the main road to the highway and there's a sporting goods store over there or was at the time. He crossed the highway. He was over there because the sporting goods guy told me he had seen him. So that made me worried. So I was checking all the ditches around there trying to figure out, you know, mm. so he ran up that way. Then he ran a mile the other way down a dirt road and turned the corner and then went down to the dam and was down there. Guys were down there salmon fishing. Well, this kid was down there salmon fishing and Deuce went down there sitting on a rock next to him salmon fishing. So he didn't know the owner or something, so he just took him home. So that's how he took him hunting, Then you know, on opening day. So anyway, I, uh, during, during, you know, he didn't want to give him back, didn't want to give him back. So I ended up, I brought him home that night. And when I brought him home, from running the roads he had wore the pads off mm -hmm. his feet and he had these blue gauze that wrap you know them that wrap that sticks mm -hmm. that sticky wrap stuff he had that all over his feet that's what he took him hunting in <laughs> <laughs> tore up his pads and, yeah so this I was got deuce I ended up, yeah this is deuce really so i ended up taking yeah yeah it was a bad deal or was good turned out to be a really good deal but when he ran away i didn't think it was i was ever going to see him again but so I ended up taking the the kid and his dad. I took them pheasant hunting over, you know, over Deuce. And, and I, you know, I got them a bunch. I worked at Avery and I got them a bunch of stuff and some decoys and I got them call and whatnot. Thanked them, took them pheasant hunting. We went, there's a European pheasant hunt over here where they release birds. And and uh, so we went over there after they did one of their hunts and we shot, I don't know, we shot like a dozen pheasants over them and Deuce is out there catching them out of the air and doing stuff. <laughs> But, you know, in the end, it taught this kid, you know, the kid, he's like, man, he's like, I'd have never known that dog was capable of doing that. And he says, you know what? I want a puppy now. So, you know, that got to, you know, the kid ended up getting a puppy and going from there. But, wow. but circling back with all that, um, I mean, I was very fortunate to get him back. But uh, circling back to all that, I learned in that one hunt, hunting that river marsh, that it really sucks to not have a good dog. I mean, it really sucks. Um <laughs> You know, you're that you need eat mud, but the the water's only up to your thighs, kind of deal. You know, mm -hmm. uh, trying to chase cripples around, and uh, so I think dogs are they they can make or break a hunt. Uh, there's nothing worse than a bad dog on a good hunt, uh, causing chaos, and it's a good way to not you know get invited back if you bring a, an unruly dog. But a, but a well trained dog, they're so much fun. And they're just like, you know, like Carl today, he's just a, he's a member of our goose crew. I mean, he's as important. His job is as important as the guys that brush the blinds, that set the blinds, that put the decoys out to do the scouting because he's got his role and his job and that's what he does, you know. Um, and we don't use a dog to pick up every bird in the spread. It's so much faster that, you know, so typically what will happen is we'll get a group of birds come in, boom, ba -da 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 -da, shoot them, high five, da 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 all right, send a dog, boom, he goes out, picks one up out of the spread. Or if a lot of times the older they get, they just learn this, they see them long bird sail. And 
I could just let him – I just look over and I know he's down. I can say his name and boom, he runs through. He got five or six of them flopping. He runs right directly by him. Boom, zooms out there 200 yards, picks up that bird. And if he doesn't, I just let him pick up a close one, bring him back, line him up on that long bird, send him out there two, three, four, six, as, long, as far as you could see him. Pick up that bird. As soon as he gets in his mouth, everybody jumps out of the blind, grabs the bird, boom, right back in. Um, it's just faster. Goes goes a lot better that way. But um, and then water, they're invaluable in water. Just trying to get yeah. cripples and stuff up in the brush and that kind of stuff. Digging birds out that you'll never find. Uh, you know, they always talk about how great of a conservation tool a well-trained dog is, and that's there's nothing further than truth on that one. Because uh, you know. Deuce, Trace, Carl, they found birds that Emma, that other dog I hunted with for a while, they find birds that they'd be lost if we didn't, you know, didn't have a dog. So, um, yeah, they're um, as important as just, like I said, having a call, having a gun, having your buddies with you that have their roles too. So, and I'll agree 100%. And I'll tell a, a quick story, but we hunted a, a, a field near the Arkansas river, not far from the house. It was in Conway kind of out near the lolly bottom out there. And, uh, this pit, this, uh, not pit, but this blind hadn't been hunted in two days, three days. We, it had, it had been rested for two or three days. And so we got to come in and hunt. And so I took my dog out and we set up and we were in the blind, like getting ready to hunt. And my dog kept like looking behind, smelling something, sniffing something, and so I just, I thought he had to pee. So I took Huck out of the blind and like, you know, hey, go, you know, business, whatever. And he, he took off down the levee where that blind was. And about two or three minutes, he came back with a bird that had been shot three days ago <laughs> and that they had lost. And so we, it just, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's incredible how much of a difference a, a good dog makes. Barry's dog a- Huck is like what you said, a part of the crew. His dog Huck is a yeah. part of the crew. Like, if we invite That's Barrett, awesome. Barrett, we just know that Huck is coming. You know, like it's 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 just a given. Oh, he's, yeah, he's Huck just, is incredible. But 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 do you do you do you, do you invite Huck and then Derek comes along? Yeah, that's pretty much. Well, what we I, do. I mean, Tyler's taking Huck, yeah, and yeah, I yeah. haven't gone. Yeah. So that's like, how, like, that's yeah. how it used to be with. That's how it used to be with Deuce. Like he would guide at that European pheasant hunt deal. And they didn't really want me. They didn't care about me. They wanted they wanted Duke. Like he yeah. did the deal. You know where you started in the pines, you go all the way through the pines, you work over to the ditch, you come back down, you go around it. You know, he knew the whole deal and you get to the end and like, all right, let's go again. You know, he didn't he was oh, autopilot, man. but yeah, it's it's yeah. really cool I, because I mean we're at a point now where Huck, I, I'm fine to hand him off with any of these guys and let him go hunt with them and, and me not even yeah. be there. So it's yeah, it's it's really, yeah. really fun to have a good dog. Oh, 100%. I remember one time, like you told that story about the three-day-old one. We did that with Deuce one time in the fog with, at that hunt club or that um, private club deal. Had a guy out, and it was on a Wednesday. Opening day was on a Saturday. This was a couple years later. And had a wood duck come in, and it was foggy. And the member shot it and wing-tipped it, sailed it like 150 yards in the fog. And he's like, you're going to send him? I'm like, when I can see where it's at, you know, I mean, I, I – send them up there in the fog i can't handle them you know so about 45 minutes later the weather kind of clears up a little bit so you're gonna send them i'm like yep i get out it's dead bird back a couple i don't know a couple three whistles get them out there and it went up into cattails we're hunting an open lily pad kind of lily pads and running water and that kind of jazz he gets up in there i poke him right into the 
the cattails where it was and he's gone man he is gone for like 20 minutes and i'm facing the other way because i had to look into the sun the member wouldn't look into the sun so he's watching where the dog is he's like you worried you worried i'm like not really he's like you sure you sure i'm like he's either gonna go to the river he's not gonna swim the river channel he's either gonna go there he's gonna run back down this way or we'll see him at the clubhouse we're fine (laughs) About 20 minutes go in there, and all of a sudden he's like, Here he comes, here he comes. And I look back, yep, he's got a bird. He gets about five feet away. I'm still not looking. I'm looking in towards the sun the other direction. He's like, He's got a mallard. He goes, I shot a wood duck. I'm like, Yeah, you shot a hen. He's like, Oh my god, it's banded. And I'm like, What? I turned around, he's got this lively Drake mallard, wingtip Drake mallard with a leg band on. <laughs> Turns out the guys that hunted the blind the that Saturday had crippled one and never found it so i'm like oh my god he's like he gets that band he gets that band he deserves it da, 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 da. i was like all right he says what about that what about that hen that hen wood duck i'm like oh man he is not gonna let up on this thing <laughs> so i sent him back in there i sent him back in there five minutes later he comes back with that stinking hen wood duck unbelievable like, Happy damn. that's a great story <laughs> and then at saint we, we hunted that same area about a 50 yards away and i had two members that day because we didn't have enough guides and on the way out they joked about it they says hey has your dog ever caught a duck in the dark i said nope and about five minutes later i'm putting decoys out there like hey remember you said your dog never found a duck in the dark <laughs> yeah so well, he's got one now <laughs> it's like oh man yeah that's one for my lanyard yep uh, yeah. so, i could sit here and tell dog stories all day I got a million stories of that dog, man, like down there uh, in Dexter. What's that? Uh, what's that? Dexter, Missouri. What's that? Um, Otter Slough. So we're hunting next to Otter Slough on private ground and rice, but we're hunting right on that levee and these like layout boats. We we actually got this on film on one of my, I think it was one of my fall pursuit deals. We shot a bird. So we're facing out into the field and we shot a bird and it sailed about, 150 yards down at treetop height into the woods and i'm actually filming this hunt and my dog trainer's running the dog and i i seen deuce he's looking i'm like he's he, he marked he knows where it is he says what do i do i said send him he runs down the levee 150 yards down the levee and then turns left into the woods he's gone for 15 minutes into the actual public area and here he comes back with that damn pintail in his mouth. Oh, goodness. And how they do that, you know, how they do that, you know, but he just knew, run down to, the, run down to where it went in the woods, turn left, and he's in there. <laughs> but you think, you I, think I, Hank would have done that? Do some... mm-hmm. no. <laughs> What's that? Nothing. He probably <laughs> I had a boykin spaniel named Hank, and he had. Was, had, had a boykin spaniel named Hank, and he was good at, I mean, he was good at peeing. He was good at peeing on stuff. Chewing blinds up. <laughs> That's good at that. about Can it. Can we get at something? <laughs> he was. Hey, the... man, sometimes I sometimes I think the smartest dogs are the ones that never get off the couch. Because, I mean, if you shot that <laughs> damn duck, you go get it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Right? I oh, mean, no. He wouldn't but, sit on the couch. He was. He. I mean, it was yeah. my fault. I tried to train him. I did a bad job. I'm, I'll, I'll take the blame. But he was so wired, like. When we went out there, he would get excited because he knew what we were doing, but he could not tone it down. Uh-huh. He couldn't pull it back down, so it was just like he was just amped <laughs> the whole time. It was, I mean. We'd be working bad. a group of ducks in the forest would have that dog in a headlock. Over yeah, the they would wrestle the in a blind. <laughs> I did. Trying to get him to chill out. <laughs> I sure I'm did. Like, <laughs> Chokehold coming yeah, off the yep. top rope. But, little 40-pound you know, boykin. 
He's all you can handle, huh? <laughs> <laughs> he was whooping for us in the end of a blind. I, I had him tied to the blind, uh, and I had my hand around his neck. At, neck at one point, we were trying to work some birds. I was just trying to hold we, him, just like be quiet. We were all quiet. laughing. We had there. birds. We had birds working, and we're laughing because Forrest is down there wrestling while we're trying to shoot these birds that are working over the top. And he's pretty much just whining and vibrating, yeah. pretty much the whole time. That's funny, but you know, like. You got to start out with a decent dog, but the more you hunt them, the more field savvy they get and know what to, I mean, mm-hmm. some of them dogs like Jimbo's old dog, Katie, when he hunted the Creek, man, she just knew where the cripples went. Didn't matter where they landed. She knew where they went, mm. you know, and she'd come back with them birds that no other dogs could get, you know, just cause she knew from seasoned vet from hunting 60 days a year. And that's a deuce, man. He hunted. I mean, he, he would probably do a uh, 16,000 pheasant European hunts a year, uh, for seven years, probably of his life, you know, and then plus hunting 80 to a hundred days a year out waterfowl hunt, you know? Good grief. So he just, he had the experience of getting out. Plus he, he was calm enough to be able to handle it too, you know, and not be out of control. Are you, are you a big believer in, American lab versus British lab, or does that matter to you? I'm I'm a I'm a good believer in a, just getting a good dog out of good bloodlines. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, the whole American British thing, uh, you know that that's a marketing thing more more on the British side than American. Mostly, um, it, it's a marketing thing, um, and more power to them. They get a lot of money out of dogs with with not as near as much accolades as say a dog like Carl has. Uh, more power to them but you know it's just about finding the right dog for the right person and for me i've always i've always had either a backyard buck and sue that was deuce um you know he was backyard buck bred the backyard sue basically <laughs> um and he was probably one of my best dogs and then you know i've had a couple of uh, field trial line dogs carl's a field champion actually he's out of um his, his pedigree stack but you know it's just about finding a well-bred dog out of parents that you you see and know um and you st- it's still a crapshoot they could turn into the straight up lunatics out of some of the <laughs> things but you know and that's that's kind of a misnomer about field trial dogs too so i i started out running hunt tests with with deuce me and a buddy he had a female and i had deuce and we go to these hunt tests and these be these wild crazy dogs snorting fire kicking dirt wouldn't sit down on the marks creeping out and, you know, all the gallery would say, oh, that dog ought to be running field trials. Oh, that dog ought to be running field trials. Well, I'm going to tell you this. I got into the field trial games after I ran hunt tests for a little while, and there could be nothing further from the truth. That dog at them hunt tests, that fire breather that's kicking dirt and doing all that, I promise you he's not going to be very good at field trials. And there may be some field trial dogs that are like that, but they are on the extreme end of the – the pendulum as far as that goes most of them are kind of like I, I describe them as like a good diesel truck they're not a maserati they're a good diesel truck you know they they they're they idle they sit there they're ready they got good low-end torque and they're going to go a million miles <laughs> you know um it, you know and they got a, a good field trial dog's got to be able to sit there and you got to watch birds they got to pay attention they got to have a good memory good eyes a good nose and they got to run straight. They got to be well trained because some of them, like them four series and some of them opens, they may take 20 to 30 minutes 
there might be four birds out there that are between 200 and 450, 500 yards. And there's some big swims, you know, that you got to go in and out of water and do stuff. So, um, so that's, I mean, the, the last two dogs that I have are out of those lines and that's not necessarily for everybody. And I hear people say, I don't need one of them field trial dogs. I don't need one of them field trial dogs. Well, I promise you, if you had one, you'd want another one Mm -hmm. because I don't need one to be able to go out and win and open. Uh, but what I need is one that's trained to that level because the level, how they train those dogs and how specific they are throughout the training curriculum and how finite and how refined they are at doing things. And they put these tools in with the, you know, the collar and, and yard work and getting in the water and running straight and doing all this stuff and be able to handle at extreme distances. So when I ran, when I ran hunt tests, I didn't know any better. So in, in, in finished in HRC finished, you got to run a 40 yard blind. It might be different now, but you run a 40 yard blind. Well, guess what we did? We taught our dog how to run a 40 yard blind. And then the next step up was finished. We got to run a hundred, 125 yard blind. So then you're out there trying to hack these out. Well, in a field trial, in field trial dogs, you never teach them to run a 40 yard blind. You teach them to run at the end of the field because they don't learn to handle and change directions in 40 yards. You're not teaching them anything about a blind in 40 yards. Mm-hmm. You're teaching it when they got to go. You say, you put your hand down, you say dead bird back. That means you go where you're pointed until I tell you to go somewhere else. Um, and, and that's the, you know, the level of detail that they put into these dogs. And once I've had it, that's what I want. You know, that's what I expect out of a dog from here on out. Not one that I got to blow 30 whistles and throw three rocks and four empty <laughs> shells to get a bird that I probably could have walked out to faster than they got it, you know. Forrest <clears throat> carries rocks in his pocket with him. There's a blind bag in that closet right there. It's got rocks in it right now. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey now down in Louisiana, they call them rock dogs. They call them rock dogs. Oh, rock dogs. <laughs> or, or mud Oh, rock dogs or mud boat ornaments or rock dogs. Yeah. Mud boat ornaments. Yeah. Rock, rocks don't work the same way in a goose field as they do out in the water. Oh, no. no. <laughs> you got to throw bigger rocks. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I hope you don't hit them in the head. Yeah. I don't want to use too much of your time up. We do have one more question for you. It's, oh, I've, it's, well, I've got a few more. Oh, so, go ahead. Uh, Sean, I mean, are you, are you coming say, up? Heck, we ain't been on that long. Yeah, I know. Are you coming to uh, Arkansas to hunt this year? I'm assuming so. I will at some point. I don't have any specific dates or anything. I will at some point. I always try to make it down there. And we've always had a longstanding tradition. I come down and hunt with John like the last weekend of the season. I I always particularly enjoy it. He's he hates when I come down there at the end because it's all the ducks are paired up and it's just the hunting sucks and all that. But to me, that's I'm I'm already wrapped up all my goose hunting and filming and doing all that stuff. For me, that's just more of a fun deal. Mm-hmm. It's just fun to come down there and see it, hear it, and do all that. And I, you know, honestly, like the last week of the season with him, it's you hunt a spot. And they got every other spots on rotation. You go in there and, and you pull you pull all the decoys out. The you know pull the dog stands out, all that stuff. I think that's fun. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, you know, well, tearing it all down. The, but, just the the process um, or the end of the process, really. Yeah, you know, it's just kind of like, hey man, we, we we ran this race all year. It's the finish line. Let's cross it together, kind of deal, you know. Uh, I I agree with you. I so, think that's that's something I love yeah. about it. Yeah. What and, a, I, and honestly, by the end of January, I'm pretty well done waterfowl hunting. <laughs> you know, I mean. <laughs> It's time. Yeah, I mean, my my waistline's already gained about two inches. It's time to get back on the 
get off the feed bag and start getting back in shape. And, um, <laughs> get ready for turkeys stuff then. together and get ready for and fishing. Yep. So, uh, as yeah. uh, for a man that hunts as much as you do and, and coming into Arkansas, what are you for specifically this season? What are you looking forward to? Ah, uh, looking forward to and dreading at the same time running the roads, man. I love getting out and meeting new people and new, meet new faces in new places and getting out and seeing old friends. Like I said, you know, I go to Manitoba. I tell people this all the time. I've seen little kids grow up to be big kids, and now they got little kids. Um, they're like family. So that's the thing I look forward to the most is getting out on the road, seeing what I call family, mm -hmm. um, and catching up, and and also meeting new people and, and learning learning new stuff, like getting different areas. I, I enjoy – a couple years ago, we went to New Brunswick. That was one of the coolest places that I've hunted and I've hunted a lot of cool places, but you're, you're hunting mountain geese basically. Wow. And you know, it's a geese, geese, geese. You're like, where are you looking up in the sky? I don't see, I don't see nothing down there. You're looking down in the back, you know, looking down. It's like, Oh, okay. Well, that's cool. And they got to kind of crawl up the hill at you. So that's I mean, interesting. that's what's cool. That's what's cool about waterfowling. Um, you can have a lot of fun hunting around home and doing that kind of stuff, but you can also get out and run around the country and see a lot of cool stuff and, and now that you're the champ, you need to go out and run the roads a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh my god, he sure does, huh? Well, take that cut down the road. Baby. <laughs> well, what what you don't know, but what all these guys know is, I am not, I am not a cut down person. That was probably the last contest I thought I would ever win was that one. But you were you were a world champion whatever, yourself champ. over there. Whatever, whatever, champ. Exactly. He just blown smoke. <laughs> what twenty twenty? Yeah, they call that deflection. That's yeah. what he's doing right now. Yeah, thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Embrace it. Embrace oh, it's, it. It's very difficult. It's very very difficult. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yep. What about you? Is it was it easy for you when you won? It, what? What do you mean easy? To be like, yeah, I'm a world champ now. No, I I still. I mean, I'm no different than anybody else who picks up a shotgun and a bird whistle and so. I, I was fortunate enough to win a few and win a couple of the right ones. And that's, that's awesome. And if people know me for that or, you know, whatever, and want to come up and talk about if it helps, you know, break the ice and talking about waterfall, then great. But yeah, I mean, it, I hope it doesn't define me as who I am as a person, but, um, but it is part of what I did. So do, do you miss competing at all? Not one stinking bit whatsoever. <laughs> no, you know, I I got into contest column as a means of, there wasn't, you didn't have YouTube, you didn't have podcasts, you didn't have social media, you know. Um, hell, there weren't camera phones, for crying out loud. So, you know, you had to get out, you had to hit the road, you had to go places and, and then immerse yourself into this stuff outside of the city park listening to, you know, birds, so that's kind of what you did. And, you know, I'm a competitive person by nature. And, um, that was kind of a, a natural thing, you know, hunting public, you know, being competitive around public and people saying, Oh, you need to call in contest and you call in contest and getting in that and, 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 uh, you know, traveling around the country and meeting people and all that stuff. But bottom line is I like to hunt a uh, whole lot more than I like to compete. And I'm a, I'm probably a lot nicer person now that I'm not competing. I, when I was in competition, 
I just assume punch somebody in the face is when I, when I walked on that stage, I was in a different world. Like I was mad at everybody and I was against everybody. Now in the bullpen, it was a different story, but it'd take me a minute just to calm back down, you know? Um, so I don't miss being in that state of mind with things, but uh, I also went through the transition period where, you know, there were a couple of upstart, you know, new call companies and splitting up off the, off the main guy. And, so there was a lot of bad blood and you sitting up on a bullpen and you couldn't talk to this person or you're not supposed to be friends. And I'm and like, dude, I was friends with these people for so long. So contest calling to me got not fun. And I just really wanted to hunt. And that's why I never really went to the world contest either. It's, it's always like the first weekend, second weekend in November. Well, hell, that's when everything was on back then, you know, around home. And I didn't really care to go out there, but Sean Mann talked me into going out there that year I won it. And then I went back the next year to defend, and then I, I never went back out. I basically quit contest calling right after that um, and just went went at hunting and went at filming. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, for me personally, like I love competition calling, but I will say there 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 has been some sort of change since winning that that, it's kind of like, well, what, what, what now? I mean, I still want to win. There's two. So it, there's two contests I still want to win, and I want to compete mm-hmm. in those. But it's also, I, you know, I'm kind of realizing, like, you know, that glory was for that week, and nobody's going to think about it from from now on, other than me yeah. when I come up here and look at that trophy. Well, you start looking at you, a couple of things. You probably. Well, there's a lot of things to come into play with me for particularly is that, you know, there's other mountains to climb. You know, you've done it for a while and it's like, okay, I've won. I've been successful. You can't ever say that you're the best of all time. I, there's, I mean, maybe Tim Grounds or something. I would say, you know, best con- you know, goose caller, maybe not conscious, but you're always just good in the moment and good at the times, but there's always be somebody else that's better or whatever, but. Uh, but it's all subjective to what people want to say and, and their personal interpretations, and that gets muddied. Um, but, you know, family gets in the way, life gets in the way, jobs get in the way. There just gets to be stuff that's more important. than. I'm not, not saying that contest calling isn't important because at a certain stage of person's life, my life, whatever, it was the number one. But after, you know, I did it a while, it was like, okay, I want to do this. I want to, I want to film. I want to, you know, I need to spend more time instead of going – you know, the last, uh, the year I won the world, I, I called, I called in 16 contests, won eight of them, wow. but 16 contests, so a couple of them were double weekends. Right. So, but say there's 10 weekends, that's 10 weekends a year. I'm running the roads in the summertime when I probably should be being, you know, uh, a husband or a dad or something doing mm-hmm. that kind of stuff or focusing on my career and, you know, building, building the DVD series and that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Um, that I mean that that makes that makes total sense. I mean I still, like I said, there, I still have unfinished business in my world. There's two contests that I still want to win, um, and yeah. that's that's really just for me. But it's it's kind of like a, a mental adjustment of like what's really important, yeah. you know. And I'm still ecstatic. Like got, I, I'm very happy that I won that. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm the, over the moon for it. The fire, yeah. The the fire definitely has to be there. And that's how I was talking to Corey Nickham about it uh, a couple of weeks. I think it was 
I remember if it was Rogers or at Minnesota and you know what the fire's not there get out because you're just like so I went to world in 2000 2001 I I I mean I went to a few contests or whatever but I never practiced never did anything like I just didn't have the desire to practice and it wasn't there and I knew right away it's like all right I'm done after after the world this year I'm I'm just done and if I can walk away and and I don't have the urge to do it anymore, then just keep going. And if, if, if it eats me up, then get back into it. And it never ate me up. I just found other things to do and other places to go and people to see and geese to shoot. So <laughs> are geese still your yeah. favorite? Man, no, not necessarily, but like I kind of got pigeonholed into it. Like growing up, I mean, I was I, in, in West Michigan, I was an opportunistic waterfowl. I was a waterfowler. Like, I don't care. Like, if I come to Arkansas, I'm just as happy to shoot six shovelers as I am four greenheads. I don't care. Like, it's fun to me to shoot them. I grew up shooting whatever came by, whether it's buffalo heads, teal, whatever. I don't care. Um, but, you know, working at Rich and Tone, you always had Jimbo and you had John. Well, I mean, I know where I rank in that totem pole so uh i mean i just kind of got you know i'm i'm the i'm the goose guy you know so that's kind of where i go at but even when we're on the road i mean it's you know best option and when we're on the road i we typically don't hunt with a lot of outfitters just because i like i enjoy the whole process of the scouting uh, from you know putting it all together getting permission all that stuff and when we do hunt with with outfitters and stuff we try to be real hands-on. We don't just sit at the lodge and drink cocktails and let, you know, everybody else take care of all that stuff. We like to be, you know, in it. Um, so, uh, and I forget where I was going with all that. <laughs> I told you I walk in circles sometimes. I can't remember where I'm talking. You're but, good. What, what was um, it like being around Jim and John when you started out with those guys? What's that? When you when you started doing more stuff with with Rich and Tone, what was it like being around Jim and John and adjusting into that? Uh, cool, you know, really cool because an old buddy of mine and some people might frown when I say Tom Matthews started Avery Outdoors. He had a saying that like finds like, and you'll notice that it, when I tell you this, that you know people that have the same interests as you, the same values as you, same lifestyle as you you all tend to gravitate towards one another and you find each other. Like, you know, you got friends from all over the country that are into the same stuff you are and you just like finds like. So the same deal, man, I was we traveling the country. I have my DVD series traveling the country. We we're doing a bunch of stuff for sportsman's warehouse where Stu was the owner was flying us out to all these different, uh, different sportsman's warehouses all over across uh, the, the West and upper Midwest. We did Spokane and, uh idaho falls and uh, st cloud a couple other three or four other ones well john and jimbo were on these and i mean i just got to know them on them things and i knew them a little bit through when i worked with avery uh you know because we had a camp down there in stuttgart so i knew from that and getting to know them and just started talking about opportunities and whatnot and, and it's just one of them deals where you know like finds like you know um i think it's a cool deal you know jimbo john and i uh, waterfowl what we do is, is hard on relationships. It's hard on wives and, and to find, you know, to be able to keep that through. You don't see a lot of people in the industry that have stayed in the waterfowl industry that have stayed married, at least to the same woman. And 
and I'm proud to say, you know, all three of us have, you know, and that's just one thing we have in common. We're family people, we, you know, you know, fear God, you know, and love the outdoors uh, and, and love the passion for the sport from a, you know, truest sense. And that's why we try to teach people about the history and bring up the past, because if you don't know your history, you don't know where you're going. And, you know, history has a tendency to repeat itself. And, you know, some of the pitfalls that, you know, that, that, that happened along the way, if you know, history is you can try to avoid some of that stuff. So um, that's, does that kind of answer your question about working with them? Um, yeah. Yeah. I no, mean, it's it, been fun. It's been fun. Both, you know, great dudes. I mean, Jimbo's Jimbo's not there anymore. And I, 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 but I still talk about him like he's there because I still consider, you know, him family, him, you know, rich and tone fan, you know, him and his family is part of the rich and tone family still. So. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, I, yeah, I, I feel the same way. Like the, the group of guys that, you know, that I'm hanging out with here tonight, like none of us grew up together. None of us grew up close to each other or anything like that. But you, like you said, like finds like. And I mean, yep. we, we talk every day pretty much. And mm -hmm. a lot of the times it's not even about waterfowl. I mean, it's, it's about something else. So we just joke with each other during the day just to, we need to lighten the mood at some point in our day. So we'll talk to each other. But no, I, that's, you know, it, it was funny is like, any, like, like I talked to the, the people I grew up with and went to high school with, I talked to far less than the people. I know more about what's mm -hmm. going on in Stuttgart than mm -hmm. I know what's going on 10 miles from where I live right now, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and, and I, and I know, you know, uh, I know and it's what's going on with my my extended family in manitoba more than i know what's going on with some of the people in that are kin to me you know it's because i said like finds like and we gravitate in the same morals and i got family that doesn't you know have has the same morals let's just say that is what i have <laughs> you know so i i don't you know so i you know so it's just like finds like we're gonna call this episode uh life lessons with sean Stahl. <laughs> Sean, so it's, I don't know about that. Sean, with traveling as much as you've follow, done, don't don't follow me. Sean, <laughs> traveling as much as you've done over the years and talking about those relationships, do you have one that's a little bit more special to you, or that you have circled on the calendar every year that you like to go to? Hundred percent, man. And that's that's Goose Camp in Manitoba. Um, I, that that you know, we've become very close to the to a Hutterite colony up there, and you know, there's 25 families, and they're just like you know, like kin to me. I mean, my last name's Stahl and that's a, Stahl is a, uh, um, a pretty, uh, um, uh, it's, it's not pop, not a popular name, but a, a known name and their religion and stuff. So, um, uh, you know, I've got, got that in common with them. Um, good friends, you know, I consider them like family, uh, and then several other landowners around the area, same deal. Uh, I've known them forever. And I just, I, I really look forward to going up there and that's, Man, when COVID hit a couple of years ago, it didn't suck that we couldn't go there and shoot birds because honestly, the hunting is not that great there. Um, we can make do with what we need to do for filming wise, uh, and it works out great. But it's just the the fact that we couldn't see the people. You know, mm -hmm. we can still mm -hmm. talk to them on the phone, but that's not the same, man. That's not like you can't give them a hug and tell you know see how the kids are growing up and whatnot you can't that's just stuff you can't do even on facetime it's hard to do yeah there's there's so that, something that's the one trip that i circle every year 
there's something special to be said about when you get to go visit people that you you know plan to see every year and get to sit at a table with them and share a meal and actually actually fellowship truly fellowship with the people you enjoy being around oh 100 man we have dinner with them every night it uh um that that when covid hit we couldn't cross the border that that sucked man that was Mm -hmm. a that was a right there but you know and now now they got that deal where you got to draw to get in there and we're only allowed to go seven days we didn't go like we would only hunt like eight to ten days really when we were there but i'd always you know i'll go a couple days early or stay a day late kind of deal but now they're kind of cutting us short to seven days of hunting and we're probably going to take off from there and go to Saskatchewan. So that, that kind of shortened our trip up a little bit. You know? Yeah. So, Sean, are, you know, are you paying we'll attention? Are you paying attention to what's going on? Do you see any, uh, or foresee any upcoming issues with, uh, what government's talking about lockdown now in Canada, or have you been paying attention to any of that? Man, I, I've heard rumblings and rumors and I hope it's not true. That's gonna, yeah, I, I can't control it. All I can do is react to it. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna worry myself over it till, till it happens and we'll figure out what to do, but it, yeah. it will suck if they do it. And again, not from the standpoint of, I mean, I don't, I mean, the hunting, like I said, isn't the, the first part of it. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, I was asking more or less just because we're planning on going to Canada as well. And I didn't know if maybe some of your connections and people that you stay in touch with up there, if they've given you any, any feedback or news. Cause we're, yeah, we're kind of constantly daily watching to see what happens yeah. to. I don't know. I don't know. I know it will suck if it does. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's just another nail question. in the coffin with it. it just, it's just less and less opportunities, man. It just it's the way waterfall is going, and you put COVID in there, it makes it even worse. Yeah, mm. for sure. That's your question. You ask your question. Well, Sean, we uh we like to end, and one of my favorite things to ask, which you've done so much, but if you're sitting at Goose Camp in Manitoba, or you're sitting in Stuttgart with your buddies, and you're sitting around that fire. What is uh when everybody's telling stories? Do you have a go-to one story that stands out that like this is my go-to story to tell, whether it's hunting or life or whatever it's related to? I, I, we want to hear the the Sean Stahl story that gets told around the fire. Man, I I'm more of a listener and a joker <laughs> than a storyteller. Yeah, I I I, I more listen and. We, there, there isn't so much stories getting told. Phil tells most of the stories. And then most of us are just jawjacking each other back and forth. So um, it ain't so much a story. It's just sitting around a campfire, drinking a couple of beers, and planning out the next day. That's really it for me, mm-hmm. honestly. Okay. Oh, come on. You got Probably. some story that you know you want to tell. Uh, not one that I – not really. No. I mean, we just – shoot from the hip on him it's Talk hard to top a kid a stealing your dog and hunting him that, yeah that's that was a pretty true. good story that was a really good story yeah yeah but yeah no they're kind of free-flowing i don't really have any go-to's i really well we'll have you on again and we'll we'll, we'll give you more preparation usually i will message the person that we're going to yeah. interview and have them ahead of time and i forgot to message sean and tell him hey have a story ready. preparation that sounds like a medicine <laughs> <laughs> it's close it's close 
<laughs> well, Sean, for for people that which I'm I'm assuming most people know who you are, but where can we find you? Are you on social media and places to to look you up? Yeah, I I am. Um, I'm kind of a social media hermit in the off season, though. <laughs> but uh, that's probably a good thing. I, I am. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just like to take my like I don't know, like my kid, man. Like from the time he turned thirteen, you know, the, when he first get on Facebook, my wife's like, "So you can get a Facebook account?" He's like, "No." She's like, "Why not?" He's like, "Why do I want everybody knowing my business?" Exactly. And I you mean, made I, your kid it, right. It's, it's kind of that's kind of it. I mean, he's still to this day. He doesn't. I mean. <laughs> He doesn't really, he's really on any of it, you know. Good for um, him. But he's he's 21 now. Uh, but yeah, so um, I am book. Uh, I am on Instagram and I you know, TikTok, all that stuff. Uh, and and I get pretty active coming up here when you know a lot of things are going on. And I try to be really good at um, if people hit me up with a message or you know comments, concerns, and you know listen to this or how's this sound. I try to get back to him, man, as quick as possible. I joke around with my wife, you know, like on my phone. So just sitting here, I've got uh, 27 text messages, five emails, and three Snapchats, two on Instagram, <laughs> uh, and one on one on uh, TikTok. So I will go through all this stuff. I hate having numbers on those things. My wife will have like 900 emails, and it just bugs me. I hate seeing <laughs> that. So I will go through all that stuff before I go to bed tonight and respond um That's so cool. I, I am quick to respond on all that stuff you know people got questions or anything like that so i try to help people out man i knew what it was like growing up trying to learn how to blow a goose call and not having you know people to ask and or being able to trust you know your contest calling people give you the right information so i try to i try to help people out you know as honestly as i can yeah. i mean i may not know what you know i don't know everything and i'm not afraid to say that either but i'll i'll kind of try to steer them in the right direction as best i can well I, w- I will definitely send you some videos of my goose calling just to you know help you feel better and give you a Let's few go. laughs go. hey man <laughs> so i tell people this all the time i blow a short read goose call the same way i blow a cut down well, the same air pressure same i don't i don't use it i don't use the tip of my tongue i don't do you use the tip of your tongue in a cut down i do yes See, I don't. Everything's in, is. <laughs> I know. We talked about that, and you all, blew my mind with how you throat. cut the air yeah. off for your goose calls. Yeah. <laughs> so that's if I'm duck calling with a cut down. Is <laughs> and when I chatter, I use the tip of my tongue. But if if I'm goose calling, it's. <laughs> and where are you where are you cutting the air off at though? Right here, <laughs> like you're coughing. <laughs> See, I, I, like in that. my mind, I have to cut the air off with my tongue at some point. So, it, so like, you blew my the mind. Thing, the, the thing, the thing with the tip of your tongue, and it's hard that I don't have a call. So I got a million calls over here. I got a tune tomorrow. Not a million, but like before you go to bed. Um, <laughs> no, those uh, tomorrow <laughs> before I go to bed. Um, <laughs> but the thing with using the tip of your tongue. It's a stop. You're stopping the air. You're gating the air. So then you got to start the air back up. If you can learn to meter your air coming through your throat, where air is constantly coming through, you're just pinching it off and, and letting it out. You can get a lot faster with your notes. And I teach, I used to teach people that European siren with a goose call that, oh, we, oh, we, oh, we, oh, 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 where you go high, low, high, low, high, low, high, low. And it just gets you to that uh, constantly pushing air through the call and you're just pinching it off with your, 
with your throat, you can get really fast with it. Interesting. And that's, I just started teaching myself to do that with a cut down. I'm, I'm, I'm by no means a champ like you on a cut down. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, <laughs> champ. Um, but, <laughs> but, I can, I'm, and I, I can pass as, as somewhat presentable to uh, the species I'm calling with it um, by doing it that way. But I blow, like I said, I blow a short reduce call the same way I blow a cut down call as far as the quack cadences go mm. and just quacks. So, last thing, you do have your own line with Rich and Tone of you goose said calls. last you said last thing about six times now yeah we're yeah. We're, we're notorious for that we're, we, we <laughs> are off the X for a reason we really don't know where yeah, we're going yeah. we're, I mean we're the support That's group fine. for everybody that Man, doesn't kill I can, anything I can, I, can talk, <laughs> I can talk for an hour or more but yeah so what was your question I was just going to let you talk about your, your goose call line that you've got with Rich and Tone yeah so I mean I've I've designed all of the goose calls for rich and tone that we have on, on in the market right now, the G3, the G45, boy, that's original names, right? Uh, the micro goose, the micro SS, which is Sean stall, boy, that's another original. Um, I can design goose calls, making up names is a little bit difficult for me, but well, I mean, uh, think, of, think of some I, of the names from anybody. rich and tone. Anyhow, we're all they good have, at our own things. They <laughs> have the rich and tone original. They have the rich and tone short barrel, which I mean, has yeah. the short barrel, yeah. the micro hen, I mean, that's yeah. a rich and But I can thing. give anybody a nick, yeah. which is funny because I can give nicknames out to people and like like that. But um, so we come out with my actual line, and these are the calls that I didn't I didn't design just for. So the the regular rich and tone line, we kind of try to fit niches with them. These calls I designed for this is the style of calls that I want to use personally. So we got the L train. It's small. I can tune it. I mean, it's just it's the size of your hand, um, and I can tune it to be able to do anything from lessers to snow geese to giant Canada geese all in one. It's not super user friendly, but uh, if if you can operate a goose call, you can do just about anything on it. It's like taking the training wheels and the uh, stock muffler off off a off a bike, you know. Um, and then we got the Branamax, which is a little deeper fuller. You know, more resident Canada goose, more, um, uh, you know, near woodlots or echoes and stuff like that. And then we got an old style flute, which, you know, we're bringing the flute back. Sweet. I, I did not say, know about the flute. Oh, uh, well, we, we make them in limited supply, so they're, they're a little hard to make. They take a long time. And Rusty probably throws about every other one of them against the wall because they're <laughs> such a pain in the butt to make. But, uh, but him or coonfoot. Yeah. So, um, that's just a different style of sound. And I always talk about waterfowling in general, life in general, it's, it's waterfowling more than, but it's, it's a, it's a revolution and not an evolution. You know, the waterfowl get conditioned smart to the things that we do on a daily basis. They don't get book smart. So what they do is they forget about the stuff that was going on 10 years ago and you can pull that old stuff out and old school things and get good at, you know, these cut downs are good right now. Uh, ducks might get onto them here in three or four years and then you pull out your old J frame and then boom, guess what? They're breaking their necks trying to get in a hole. Right. Um, it's kind of that way with Canada geese. It's just a different style of sound. When short reach first came out, man, they were, you could, I could call them off of people blowing them old big rivers and them old eight hundreds and Ken Martins. You know, I just start cracking that. I had a, uh, Tim Brown's half breed. I'd hit that thing. maybe a half mile away. And, just, <laughs> and now, 
you go there and there's there's six kids in one group that can blow calls like that you know so it's it's they're getting conditioned to that and they're not mm-hmm. reacting to that sound as well as they used to so it's trying to pull things out and just try to be a little bit different I love it. We're gonna have to have you back on again at some point, probably after season. We'll talk. <laughs> we'll talk about how your season was, but we really don't want to take up all your time. Y'all are looking at me funny, like I, y'all. No, I'm just waiting if you had another last thing. Yeah, yeah. I was waiting for one last thing. I can. Do you want me to have enough? <laughs> Sean, They're we really at appreciate you like it. You the champ. <laughs> They're looking at you like you the Gosh. champ. We do look like. Yeah, we you look need at to go like now. <laughs> we are done. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, really, right. for real, okay, really right. appreciate it. Uh, you, you've got a wealth of knowledge as far as waterfowl goes, as for sure. But I've learned a lot from you over the years just through that, and it's an honor to get to talk to you, to you and interview you for Off the X through Zoom. Really appreciate you coming on. We've uh, all we've all learned something tonight, and it, I really appreciate it. Well, cool. I appreciate you guys having me on, man. It's ball. I love Barrett, talking about this kind of stuff with people that are passionate. Yeah. Huh? You're usually the one that says the closing out. Oh, I don't I, know what it is. No, nothing special. <laughs> Sean, man, we like like he said, we appreciate you. We uh, we wish you luck this season, and and uh, we'll catch back up with you hopefully during season or during your season and uh, see how, uh, how everything's going and how successful you are. Cool, cool. All cool, right, later, cool. man. Later.